Do you ever think about the future at all? The future? You mean like flying cars? Hotels on the moon? Tang? And this is why you're fucked? No, it's why you're fucked. You're just trying to blueprint a future. Move to the suburbs with Jim, have kids. That's bad. If that's what music is for you, a way to get to that place, then yeah, it's, it's, it's a little careerist. And it's a little square. And it's a little sad. I'm sad? You're the one who's not getting anywhere. You don't want to get anywhere. Me and Jim try. Oh, I want to We try. You sleep on the couch. Hello there, welcome to Pivotal Film. I'm Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is episode 49. Yeah. Going down that hill. We are we are on the other, on the side. other side of the list, and, and our 30s and 20s are, are just around the corner. The 10s and the singles will come up after that. Ooh, the singles. The singles. Oh, boy. I'm things actually are, not sure things how we're going to do hot in here. Yeah. Things are a little hot in here. That's we are right. deep, Tom, within the Venice Film Festival season. Venice Film Festival. Been running since... Uh, End of August, it's going for the next couple of days, ending this weekend. Some mm-hmm. reviews are coming out. You know, you're getting Joker, getting some oddly dissident sort of reviews. Some people really digging it. Some other people thinking Todd Phillips can't really make King of Comedy and uh, that Joaquin Phoenix over X. Well, um, what's that? The, the um, Rotten Tomatoes headline was like, give Joaquin the Oscar. Yeah. So I was like, let's pump the brakes there, a little bit Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, it's like, let's watch all the other films that still have to come out. I'm pretty sure nobody wants to give Joaquin Phoenix an Oscar for playing the Joker. No. Nobody wants to do it. They gave Heath Ledger one, that's it. And he had to be dead. I think he would have won it I mean, anyway. I think he would have won it anyway. But, but it, didn't, it obviously didn't hurt his I still would have argued Michael Shannon should have won that year, but that's a different story that we won't talk about. No, we're not going to talk about that Because you Revolutionary Road. Um, Laundry Matt's getting some goofy reviews too. Mm-hmm. Lieberman said it's wonky but works. I love the wonky but works reviews. Doesn't that strike you as like someone trying to hedge their bets? That like a lot of people might really like this, <laughs> and I want to be on the record as saying it works. I just feel like Steven Soderbergh has done this now, where everyone's just like this thing's silly and goofy and weird, but but it's Steven Soderbergh, so it's good. Yeah, but we kind of he tested that already with the High Flying Bird. We're just kind of like that was a weird idea. Yeah. It was good. Excellent. Yeah. An excellent film. It's weird. It's yeah. what he does now. And we have Lighthouse coming. Hopefully Lighthouse is a success. Ooh. Just because I really want to see William Defoe get an Oscar. I just want Robert Pattinson to be on my list twice. <laughs> just just one and two. Robert Pattinson. Uh, as much as we can speaking get. Speaking of, you got the Safdie brothers. They're yeah, that's, that's... That's going to get good reviews, too. It's, I got a polarizing reception, I think. Yeah, I think that's going to be... Because it's supposed to be really discordant. And yeah. like uh, have, have a real cacophony sort of tone mm. to it in terms of... Like I said, I heard Altman-esque, but loud is, is what I've heard. That's all reviews. I've ever wanted. This Robert Altman movie with more loud sound effects and shouting. Yeah, some reviews said that drill sounds were a big part of it. So I'm kind of excited <laughs> for that. It like, makes me laugh. That, seriously, like, they're like drills. There's a lot of loud drills. Uh-huh. I'm like... Okay. That's great. Maybe there's also that in uh, a marriage story too. So yeah, <laughs> just ends with Scarlett Johansson just drilling into the brain of but Lord Dern. That's got a, a really good review so far. Yeah, it has. people are calling it like a masterpiece. And Noah Bombeck's best, which doesn't mean a lot to me. 
No, I'm indifferent to Noah Baumbach. I kind I of do, wish I wasn't. I do like Squid in the Whale, but that's like it. I think he's a good filmmaker. I just am. I'm, 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 I'm like. I'm indifferent to it. I feel like I'm the hipster who saw Francis Ha, and I was like, "This is pretentious." Yeah, but I no, I saw. That, and not even like pretentious also, in the sense of well, it's trying to be pretentious, but it's just like manic in that manic kind of pixie-ish way, and it's and like, I, "Oh my god!" I got why Greenberg Bombax was like this. A, a okay movie, but I also okay, found it really pretentious. Yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? Like it seems they're just draping Ben like, Stiller in a cloak of agitation and saying it's like, oh, he's a character. I think it almost deserves a new term in, 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 that his films do in the sense of there's a pretension to him. Like, Squid in the Wheel has, is really pretentious, but it's outwardly and purposely pretentious. Mm-hmm. Whereas his later films like Greenberg, Francis Hall, um, Miss America was him too, I think, right? Was that Miss America or... I don't know if that, he might have been involved in it, but Maybe I don't know if he directed it. Um, but the Meyerowitz Chronicles and stuff like that. I, mean, I never even got caught in Meyerowitz Chronicles. It just looks like a Noah Baumbach movie. Yeah, but those movies have like this weird pretension, but they're like subtly enough. Like they're, like they're it's kind of like a Rachel getting married situation, but Rachel getting married was a really accomplished way of doing what Noah Baumbach's been trying to do. Well, it was with more real emotions. Yeah, no, he exactly. didn't try to. Tam- they, uh, Jonathan Demme didn't try to tamp down the emo. If anything, he it's like over emotional. We'll, we'll we'll talk about that one later. Oh, we will. I don't know. Um, but yeah, hopefully this uh, this last quarter or last third of the year is better than we've been seeing. I, I hope so. I'm I'm just depressed. Very disappointing year. I'm very depressed when I look at like movie listings. It's just like how many weeks can forty seven meters down, uncaged or whatever. Be, Listen, be still in theaters. You're gonna watch Jamie Foxx and Sly Sloan's daughter act the shit out of things. Next oh, is she to, in uh, it? Yeah, next to John Colbert, next to the guy from Sex and the City and Northern Exposure. Oh, the guy that oh John Corbett, the guy that does like the Christian movies and stuff now. Does he do Christian? He does movies? a lot of Christian I movies. Yeah. yeah, I just know him from Northern Exposure. Yeah, I know. I just use Northern yeah. Exposure, a show we've talked about several times now, which is odd. Um, speaking of talking about things several times that we talk about often. Beer. We do talk a lot about beer. So this is um, Other Desi Beer. Company. A little Company. Like, it is... A decorative elephant next to it. It is brewed by uh, Thimble Island, but it was conceived and constructed and made by this guy, Ravi, who is my brother-in-law's best friend. Ooh, that's a good hoppy freight. Smells good. Yeah, what is that? Like a pininess, but a little bit of like a not mango, peach, like a peach smell. Mm-hmm. Mm, it's subtle. It is not very, very subtle. It's the least heavy New England IPA we've had. Is this a New England IPA? So it says. I would. New England, oh, New, New England, England style. style. I mean, it's still fair. That, that's fair enough to say New England IPA. It's it's got the um. The mouthfeel is not of a New England. It Which is, I like, because New England IPAs crisp. can be a I would lot. call this a crisp sort of IPA. It is very crisp. I'd lean towards more of a, kind of like a Jolly, um, or even, not, not necessarily a dogfish head, but... Um, I don't think it's as strong as dogfish head. No, no, not at all. Um, but like a Jolly kind of like feel to like a crispness to it. Hmm. Um, even leaning more towards like something like a sea hag. In terms of the mouthfeel, but it's like, uh, mouthfeel, yes, but it's also not very. It's not as aggressive as the Sea Hag. It's really... oh no 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 no. It has a taste. It does lean. The taste does lean towards New England style, but it doesn't have that New England style kind of heaviness, Mm-mm. which is nice. Um, 
I do. I I I do like it. Yeah, I think no, it's, I, I think I do it's very too. tasty. It's kind of an interesting take. Because sometimes when I'm drinking New England, it, it gets that. There's a bit of a, gran, a granularity yes, to New England styles, that. and this doesn't have that. So it's like the New England f- flavor, um, but with a kind of crisp traditional IPA. Well, I think this is the second beer in a row that I've brought that I think could be a problem for somebody. Oh, yeah. No, I can see that. <laughs> I mean, luckily, it's a 6%, so, you know. It's not going to be that much of a problem, but it's <laughs> it's not like it's an 8.5 and, and it tastes like a 2. Yeah, no. But, um, exactly. but yeah. So Do you know it could be a problem, though, Tom? Why don't you tell me? Getting married? Ah, yes. Depending on who you're getting married to. Maybe somebody with a bit of an eccentric family. A family he hasn't really associated himself with. A well-armed family? A well-armed family. And apparently a poor board game-making family in terms of the board games they're making. This is a story about the Walmart family? Yes. Um, Because the first film we'll be talking about today is the... A new horror film, horror comedy, ready or not. So, at midnight, you have to play a game. Why? It's just something we do when someone new joins the family. A game. What game? Hide and seek? Are we really going to play that? Well, the rules are simple. You can hide anywhere. We then try to find you. So there's no way for me to win, right? I mean, stay hidden till dawn. <laughs> no, thank you. Good luck. What the hell is this? How old is this thing? I know you're in here. Grace has only wanted a family. Always wanted a family. She's been raised in foster homes and... Now she has the chance to find a new family, uh, what she sees as a close-knit family, as she marries Alex, the estranged son of the Le Demont, um fortune. Uh, they are a, as he says, board game dominion, which, when I heard that, for me, I thought it was going to be a, a clever board game joke, because they talk about, like, Oh, should I call you guys a dynasty or whatever? And he's like, no, we prefer to call ourselves a Dominion. And I was like, oh, that's a, oh, yeah, the name of a famous that. board game. And uh didn't turn out that there's there's no other board game jokes throughout the movie. I was pretty disappointed <laughs> in that. She finds out that they have some eccentricities. Um, they, at the night of the wedding, at midnight, the new bride, the our husband, must pick a card from this little puzzle contraption that was given to a great, great ancestor by a man on a boat. All good puzzle contraptions the were Mr. given to men on boats. Yeah. And they, he, she is told by Tony, the patriarch of the family, that this Mr. LaBelle and their relationship is, is the thing that set into motion their great fortune. And all she has to do is Turn a dial and pull a card. Some people have played Old Maid. Some people have played Checkers. She draws Hide and Seek. It turns out Hide and Seek is the one card you do not want to draw. Because whenever Hide and Seek is pulled by a new member of this family, they must be hunted down and murdered before dawn. Or, or else... All the family will die. Why? 
Because it turns out Mr. LaBelle is, is just Satan. And oh. Meta, they're, they're devil worshippers. Oh. Um, to a degree. So he wasn't on a boat? He was on a boat. Like, all that, all that you're led to believe is, is true. So Satan was on a boat? Motherfucker. <laughs> I'm on a no, um, This film tries to, at times, be a, a low-level satire on the accumulation of wealth and old wealth and, and they're oftentimes brutal attempts to maintain wealth and other times it tries to do some odd metaphorical interpretations of the fight between good and evil mm-hmm. the evil devil worshippers versus grace the amply named grace Hugo who is daughter. shot <laughs> through the hand oh. has a hole missing in her hand and then tries to climb up a wall, a ladder, and it impales her hand on a nail. <gasps> and then when she's trying to escape, a spear ornament from a fence cuts into her side. Why is this necessary? Did no Gibson it's, direct this movie? It's not. But it's the attempts of some sophomore directors and writers trying to do something fun. Or, I don't know exactly. Uh-huh. But, that being said, for what it is in a failure of metaphor, <laughs> or in terms of making a statement on the social, political, social class, uh-huh. it works successfully as a fun satire and comedy of horror. Mm-hmm. It plays one of my favorite tropes <clears throat> of the accidental repeated deaths of maids three of the house's maids are killed all by accident is that a thing that happens in horror movies that have takes place no, in the old houses it's just it's it's not even a subversion of a trope it's literally just a trope that's often happens in these kind of like hunting down a person oh okay or uh you know in any sort of like murder mystery people are just often accidentally killed when they're not supposed to be Right, they are thought to be the person that they were hoping to kill, and it's not. It's just somebody else. Yeah, exactly. Um, But most of these are done by the youngest daughter who just doesn't know what she's doing. Um, She accidentally shoots somebody, one of the maids, in the head, thinking it's the Grace. Mm -hmm. She's high on cocaine throughout the entire (laughs) film. Uh, She then later gets an old crossbow because they think it's going to be safer, and she accidentally fires it through the mouth of another maid. (sighs) Then the third maid is not killed by her. She just gets trapped in a dumbwaiter and is crushed to death. That's good. I like dumbwaiter deaths. Has satire. It doesn't work at all. But has a film that's fun. It's good. This is... this, and, And the thing I found most impressive that shocked me are the performances. Mm hmm Um... Samara Weaving is actually somebody I've been starting to like like for this horror comedy kind of thing she's been doing. She mm-hmm. was in the last year's Babysitter, the Mick G epic. Oh, Jesus. Before, or maybe it was two years ago. Um, it could, yeah, I was going to say, could it have been last year? We got was, rid of him, was, didn't we? Two, no, I think it was two years ago. She played the uh, titular babysitter who is actually helping to lead a series of devil worshippers who need a sacrifice. Basically kind of a very similar plot to this film. But she is super charismatic and 
Adam Brody actually plays his role with some gravitas. I thought he was dead. I really did too. Uh, when he was stabbed in the back in Scream 4, I thought that Wes Craven was like, we have to kill one actor to make it look real. I actually just assumed and everybody was that was him. on the OC at this point was just... Just gone. Didn't exist anymore. Just gone. Probably. They all, um, I thought they were all raptured. <laughs> um, Mark O'Brien kind of plays... Uh, plays the conflicted son who tried to run away because you see in the beginning of the film the the first time one the, the first time he had was exposed to this mm-hmm. hide and seek game uh who has a slow turn back to evil when he realizes that grace is going to leave him uh because of this craziness <laughs> um you know all the all the performances really carry what is a pretty razor thin not that very good of a script uh-huh um and I think that actually is highly exemplified with the fact that this film burns at a good pace, a really good clip where you have a, a good 20 minutes set up and then about an hour of a chase film of, mm-hmm. of her kind of sneaking around and not really killing. She doesn't even kill anybody. Or, you know, she's, you think it's going to be like a typical sort of the hunter becomes the hunt, the hunted mm-hmm. becomes the hunter. Um, and instead, she just kind of runs away, gets caught. And then gets brought back, and then is only saved by uh, Adam Brody's Daniel's turn against his family. Um, and then he is he's killed, and all this is pacing out great. And then it gets to the end. Uh, they try to kill her. They're unsuccessful. Uh-huh. Uh, nothing happens. And the dawn comes, and they think, you know, they, they think all this has been for naught. And then they all just explode into a... a pit of blood they just explode into blood and bits all of the family even the old uh even the non-blood members the married ones and the the small children who have just participated in the game they all explode and it just happens all of a sudden that's cool eight people dying at once because the filmmakers realized they couldn't have their film go over a hundred minutes does satan ever come back he's he's shown slightly in, in a a ghost form of fire. The, a big part of the film is that people can never see him except for uh, one of, I guess, um, Alex had seen it as a child. Uh-huh. Uh, but Grace sees him at the end and he like tips his hat to her and hmm. says, like, oh, you, you beat me, I guess. Good job, Jesus. Because you're a Jesus <laughs> parallel. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just one of those films that, you know, it's, it's gotten really incredibly solid reviews. Yeah. But people are giving it way too much credit it's it's not well written it looks nice at times i i think i think it's the shot composition's great um the editing's solid throughout the film production design from the trailers yeah. look pretty good yeah the production design's great um it's all like the pieces of a film that are pretty, usually considered secondarily important work and then the acting on top of that works really well uh-huh. but from a writing and direction standpoint had they not kind of like lucked into all this, mm-hmm. it would have been just as much of a failure as some of these this uh, this team's previous works. Um, yeah, what are they called again? Uh, they are they were Radio Silence. Radio they Silence, made uh, yeah. the 2014 film Devils Do, which is one of those great you know seven million dollar movies that made thirty seven million was ravaged by critics 
came out on DVD and then nobody remembers it. Mm-hmm. I literally looked up this movie. I was like, oh, I remember that coming out. And I was like, I read the, the synopsis for Devil's Doom. And I was like, I don't remember I don't this remember coming that, out. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is, uh, it's, I think everyone's kind of reacting to the fact that it doesn't seem to take itself very seriously and that there's been a lot of horror movies recently that have taken itself like, so seriously. How, really? Like I Child's think, Play? No, it's not even the Child's Play. I think it's like the Annabelle shit. Like, how, Maybe. like, everyone's now, like, now there's a big movement to get, like, The Conjuring, like, it's due as, well, like, now a we have classic the Conjuring horror. cinematic universe. Yeah, it's like, come on, man. Um, when all that stuff's, like, way too serious, where all, a lot of people really want to do is just kind of kick back and watch something, like, fun happen. Like, they yeah. don't want to have to think too much. I mean, that's why I'm surprised they put all that weirdo stigmata symbolism in there. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> that's the thing. As I, as I think... To a certain degree, this is played with a lot of, like, tonally there's a lot of jokes in there, but ultimately this film does try to, like, curve at times into the serious and have moments of real, like, weight, Mm -hmm. and those don't work at all, um, because the actors don't really care to do that, they just want to lean into the humor, which this film needs to, because it's a ridiculous premise that's been done to death both the you know group of wealthy people hunting an outsider oh my god and devil worshippers hunting a person you know like like this is all just you know the only difference is it takes place in a mansion and barely on the grounds you know um which makes me bummed out for ryan johnson's knives out was there a preview for that during the trailer where it's just like hey it was not it was just it was only horror films here's another movie in a house there was a lighthouse trailer, people. which was the greatest thing ever. I a love trailer, the trailer for the lighthouse, and I'm like, this is not the audience. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be great. So I think the main tell me, have we been here five weeks or two days? <laughs> what does he say afterwards? Help me recollect. So help me recollect, right? Yeah, I, don't, oh. I remembered it when I saw it. I think we already quoted that. Line. Yeah, we have. This is a great line. So the question, I think, Mario, that I want to ask you now about. Ready or not is, what do you think the Obamas would think of Ready or Not? I think they would really want to talk about the dissonant interpretation of Ready or Not mm-hmm. between Americans and nationals from a different country. The presumed Chinese people that are going to need to see this movie a lot for. I mean, it is becoming it... it is becoming the biggest film market. So that's true. That's true. It Perhaps is also apparently a huge auto glass manufacturer. <laughs> manufacturing market and that is my really adept not quite as good as mario no don't do it don't do it every time we mentioned that we did a segue it makes it bad i don't think it does i think it would if this is like a really super quality podcast (laughs) where that stuff mattered at all um super high quality (laughs) i definitely before we started this podcast had to shake the microphone cables to get them to, to get them to turn on, we're better than the Rogan experience. We're way better than the Rogan experience because this podcast is only going to be like an hour and thirty minutes, and the Rogan experience is podcast are like three hours. And, and is also hosted by Joe Rogan. Yeah, well, I mean, not to get like on a tangent here, but he did this interview, and I might have even talk about it here with Chuck Palahniuk, where like Chuck Palahniuk kept trying to talk about other stuff, and Joe Rogan literally only wanted to talk about the fact that Chuck Palahniuk was once kicked out of a writer's group. Well, you know, it's also interesting all he about Joe Rogan, about. and more aptly for American Factories, he considered government employees lazy and worthless. I believe that's a sentiment that's, that's talked about in American Factory. 
stand here today uh, with a plant that's closing, but I'm extremely proud of the people that work in this plant here. For a year and a half, I didn't have anything. We lost our home, we lost a vehicle. I have struggled to get back to middle class again. This is a historic project that is going to help grow this community, give people jobs, and give a future to your kids and my kids. Where you sit today used to be a General Motors plant, and now there are over 1,000 employees working here. Is this a union shop? It is our desire to not be. American Factory tells... Uh, tells the story god fucking damn it you can't even say, in, you can't even say a documentary tells we're the story. literally never i'm never gonna get it i'm never gonna get that down i'm never gonna get the transition did you see didn't you between, hear mine where i was like grace just wants a family yeah i can't do that here because <laughs> i didn't write down every character's I'm just, name i'm just gonna write i'm just gonna write your uh um yeah in 2000 in 2008 in uh you know the midst of the great recession as it were uh they closed a gm manufacturing plant in dayton ohio um, yeah, five years later, seven years later, um, a well, Chinese 2015. Yeah, twenty fifteen. So seven years later, a Chinese auto glass manufacturer named Fuyao um, swooped in and reopened the plant and decided it was going to manufacture some auto glass in in America and it was going to have uh, this harmonious. Um, Unity between Chinese employees that were mandated by the company to move from China to America for two years and have no days off and no vacations to see their family. Um, and American auto American people, many of whom worked um, at the GM plant, who expected to have, you know, general American workplace hours and, and, and compensation and benefits and support and all this other stuff. Um Needless to say, none of none of that really happened, um, and American Factory is the inside account of of how that process went and how that process went from a kind of dreamlike utopia, manufacturing utopia, to something more resembling what we all understand globalized manufacturing to actually be, which is um, a compromise. On one side, um, in this side, the the American workers who are just happy to have jobs and will put up with whatever kind of degradation. Um, it's not. I suppose it's not as bad as 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 some places are to work, um, but it's portrayed as being not so great um, at the cost of, um, you know, this company Fuyao. Getting all of its auto glass done, meeting its numbers, and turning profits, and making their weird king-like chairman um, happy, so he doesn't have to fly to America as much as he does. Um, while this is happening, they try to form a union with the uh, United auto, auto Workers Union, and, and they fail, um, which is sad, but also, I suppose, inevitable. Um, I don't know. It was illuminating. It's kind of plain. We were talking a little bit off air. It's an observational, done in an observational style. Exactly. Con contrast this with Michael Moore's Roger and Me, which has a or even lot the of big one, yeah. academia behind it. In terms of uh, editorializing, I should say. 
Um, this film relies less on that. It doesn't have sort of a, a narrator or a guide to, to point you in the direction by which you are meant to think. Obviously, it's edited in the way uh, to which there is a, a defined narrative and a defined thesis being made, but it doesn't well, and I also pontificate th- upon that. It doesn't. And to that point, I think the editing... I, so it was directed by Stephen Bogner and um, Julia Reichert. The editing, um, I think, is really well done for a, for a while, and then it's not so well done, and then it's well done again. And it says they, they try to portray... It seems like they try to portray everyone in the best... Like, with the best intentions. You know what I mean? Everyone seems to be going into this in the very beginning of this movie with, like... We're gonna turn this thing around. We're gonna make this a. We're gonna turn this town around. We're gonna make this um, a really good place to work. We're gonna bring some like Chinese values. We're gonna bring Chinese money. We're gonna bring all these opportunities to this town. Um, and then Sherrod Brown gets on stage during like their grand opening and says, "I know I've heard that they don't want a union here. I would support a union here." And the wheels kind of come off the American side of this corporation to the point where like all the American executives working for a Fuyao America get fired at some point and replaced with Chinese executives that are better equipped at dealing with the impending union like uprising that's that's coming in their thing. Um, but that doesn't happen for a while, you know what I mean? And you even get that really weird scene where all those guys go to China, like all those... Dayton, Ohio natives go to China to like learn from the Fuyao Chinese um, employees, and <clears throat> that one guy is crying like during that weird ceremony where people yeah. get married and there's skits and songs all about how great Fuyao is, and um, he's like, "This is we are one," and I didn't realize it till today. Like we're, it's, oh my God, the chairman, the chairman is riding his tiny motorcycle to see us. Um, you know, he's, we are one today. Like, I didn't realize until now it's all, you know, you know, it's one globe. We are one people, all this other stuff. Um, but then it's, it's I, I think it's like one of the strengths of the movie where it kind of presents this kind of baby stepping towards the middle for everybody. And then it just breaks apart. And it's almost irredeemable to the point where like a lot of the employees that we've kind of gotten to know, um, some of them get fired some of them have voted yes, but still work there and are now just kind of lamenting the fact that, like, everything's different. They really don't have any options here. They're just, they're resigned to work at this factory for $14 an hour as opposed to do something else because there's nothing else to do because they've been working in an auto factory for, you know, their whole life. Um, I think it's good at that um, as, a, as a film. As, you know, I, I'm not really sure I want to, in, investigate the politics of it yet? I think just you know from a film perspective, I think it, I think it, I think it works pretty well at doing at being fairly fair when it can be, and then kind of laying, putting the cards on the table for everyone involved when it has to do that. Like it doesn't go right into it saying like fuck these people, these people are good. It's kind of presenting a double-edged sword in the very beginning. I. I would disagree with that to an extent. I think the when it opens with, you know, like, is this a union shop? We'd prefer not. Um, it it kind of, like, sets a tone. Um, and really quickly we get to the part of contrasting, you know, like, the, the opening ceremony with kind of this really weird totalitarian-esque level of indoctrination, you know, like, mm-hmm. where the Chinese, with the Chinese ceremony... Um, 
with those weird know, classes that the Chinese the, the people have classes, to take about America's uh, weakness. Them, them standing in a line, yeah. saying, you know, the standstill is the step back. Um, but I think that, I think it's when I say that it's they're presenting kind of both sides of the coin. So the Americans, they don't so in from the American auto workers' perception. I'll just say auto workers from the American Fuyo glass manufacturer. Blah, blah, blah. From the American auto workers' perspective, they are um, asked to kind of do things they might not be prepared to do. They're asked to work harder than they feel like they sh- they should because they're already they feel like they're already working really hard. They're asked to work, you know, long hours. They're asked to not form a union, and that's juxtaposed with like the Chinese employees who are asked to not see their fa- who asked to work twelve-hour shifts, have no days off. Some of them never see their families. They see their families once for two days, like during this like special holiday that they're allowed to see their family, I guess, um, and they just feel they have to. Like it's they're compelled by their nationalism almost to complete all these tasks and it's just kind of asking the movie is asking you at one point because there's no narration um to just kind of weigh your feelings on how this works you know what i mean like what like this is bad but this is also bad isn't it it's just two different shades of well, badness i think to yeah to that degree though this is still an american production mm. you know produced by higher ground the the first film from the barack and michelle obama you know, company that they're going to be working with Netflix, uh-huh. um, and, and you could you could agree to the point that like maybe in, you know the idea of of working slightly harder or, or working with more in mind of the success of the group is is important, um, but that's contrasted really quickly. You know, even beyond just the kind of totalitarian speeches and skits with you know workers without standard like with barely you know, gloves that could, you know, protect them from glass, glass resistant gloves and not wearing any sort of face protection. In China. Shifting, in China, yeah, yeah. just shifting, sifting through bits of Because they have to sort it shards. for color because in China they have to recycle everything by color. Because, no, not just they have to recycle everything by color. The color of the glass it's, is more valuable right, right, to yeah, recycle. Yeah. Um, um, and, I, and, I, and I don't think this, see this as a polemic on um, American versus... Chinese values as much as uh, no, I think it's just a, test- a testament sides. to you know capitalism unrestrained is, is real shit. Capitalism unrestrained is real shit, and I think the actually I think the bigger problem with um, everything that's portraying is that in the right conditions, everyone can convince themselves that they're doing it for the right reasons. Like the executives that work for Fuyao um, are all drinking all the Kool Aid all the time. And that's it because, must have to pee constantly because they're just so, like, enamored with the chairman and what he wants to do yeah. and, like, and what the have, goals are. When and, you have a giant piece of human shit like Chairman Chow, you know, I, love, I love the term Chairman Chow, you know, just chairman there, who has a image of himself in the American office, a, a large kind of Mao Zedong-style portrait of his face at his own home, also, has a bronze statue of him holding a trophy, who asks himself the actual very real question of have I contributed to the destruction of the environment because, you know, the quote-unquote communist system of China doesn't have any sort of EPA regulations. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You know, uh, equal, like an an EPA uh, equivalent. Um, And ultimately, 
decides that he only says that when he's unhappy. He says the point of living is to work. Don't Which you he think says so? smiling at that bronze relief of himself holding a trophy. Which I mean, when you look at him, you know, all those times you look at him, he's not really ever fucking doing anything himself. And this is just a story of a person when you put, consolidate power under one person who deserves to be torn asunder by the mass of humanity. Well, but you know, and I think yeah, I'll that's, say that. That's uh, the larger issue that I think is at work here, which I really kind of feel like if there's a failure of this movie, it's that it didn't pick a it didn't pick a major unifying theme. It didn't go to a major unifying theme theme at the end. So like I guess the major unifying theme was that like unions Perhaps it would be about unions, you know what I mean? About the, ben- like the, 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 the still benefit of unions. But I think the bigger theme is that like this guy perceives himself as like a king. A god. And all he does is own... A godhead, a- basically. Right. Or, in the, and in, that, in the building that houses the Chinese Fuyao Workers Union and every employee's in a union, they actually have five huge portraits of like the five leaders of... Um, of China, starting with Mao Zedong, um, he's just a guy that manufactures autoglass. That's all he does. Like yeah, he's he's he ultimately a worthless human being. He shouldn't have on a Chinese stage, on an American stage, on a global stage, should have no significant power to do anything. He is a person when but he dead. Does. He's we, a person when dead will be forgotten by the annals of history, right. which is great. Except and for his paintings that are going to be all over the place mm-hmm. and his brass reliefs. Well, that, that are going to be in house, yeah. um, I, I see the unifying theme of this uh, being the the benefit of, of the idea of the group um, over uh, of a group kind of thing sort of mindset versus you know that, that's created by a conglomeration of, of unifying ideas. Um, I, I think a, a good contrasting, and I, and I, I kind of sh- you know shuddered when I saw this part um, that contrasts thematically. What, what I feel this film points itself towards versus what it's contrasting it with is, um, and this happens nearly parallel in, in portions of the film compared to early on when you have, you know, the, the singing about the, the singing, the, um, the praises of, of the factory it is almost perfectly mirrored with the singing of union togetherness and, and you know, sure. the strongness of that. And I think that is, I think that is the unifying theme here is that, you know, you do need some sort of thing to work towards. Like, like work needs to have a purpose. You can't just go into work to, to collect money. You know, they, they talk uh, about the idea yeah. of that. And, and as, a positive, say, as a positive idea or as a negative idea? No, as, as, as a, no you don't, shouldn't go to work to just... I, I think that's trying to say, like, yeah, just plainly saying that is wrong. But unifying together as a group to reach you know, malleable and beneficial situations for all is, is a, is a higher goal and a higher idea than unifying yourself underneath the ideology so, of one mind. So my point would be that it, it should have, I think the movie should have taken, um, especially one made by the Obamas or supported by the Obamas produced by the Obamas, um, should have taken the next step to say not so much that, you know, we should all work as a group to do whatever unions, blah, 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 blah. Should have taken the next step. So maybe it adds some analysis, maybe it adds some scholarship to say, like, to talk about the idea. So they, they do it a little bit, like the idea of human rights. You know what I mean? Like, we're people. 
like we're not like we are employees at a company. The Chinese employees are employees in a company. You our are paying our wages, but the fact that like I have a that one guy has a cut all the way up his calf. You know what I mean? Because of like a glass shattering or that one girl who obviously cuts her hand and she's like begging them to tell her like that she's going to be able to keep her job and they're just like, I don't know how it works. I don't don't really know how it works, but you will. And you'll have your job. Yeah, no, and I think the important thing to have contrasted with this too, and I I think it it creates like that us mentality versus a them mentality. Which Um, they talk about a lot in the movie. Like the Chinese really jump on that. Like they don't think you're as good as us. Like and we are better. Like they actually say at one point, like we're better than them. But that is that's a mentality that's that's you know, illustrated and, and punctuated by the people who are still you know subscribing to the ideas of the chairman, um, who yes, are in yeah, positions yeah, of management. It doesn't get to. It, uh, I'm sure they just didn't have access to the assembly line workers, and it tries to do that slightly with that um, that one. Like supervisor who's, yeah. who's kind of says like oh you know the Americans can work, work two jobs and you know ACB well that was jobs, actually but. my fa- and I, I made a note of that that was my favorite scene in, the, in a fairly unremarkably shot movie like which is fine you know what I mean it, no it's it doesn't need observations to be. reportage it doesn't it's not, need to be it's not a nature documentary but that moment was very profound with that like machine working over his head and him talking about like the pressure to get all this work done yeah just how you said like the fact that he admires. American workers for being able to be so detached from their jobs that they can leave one job and then go do another job. Mm-hmm. Where in America, we would be like, no one should have to go to one job and then, like, a full time job at a factory and then work another job to make ends meet. This guy's saying that that's, that's good. Like, he wishes he could do that. He wishes he were so detached from his job that he could do that. Which, which is, I think, which is, I think, is talks about the shift in the mentality of, of, you know, like if this film, I think, had access to, like, the, like the the regular Chinese workers was able to kind of be on the level with uh, one of those Chinese workers who are working on the glass, or their thoughts on like living in the dormitories, it would have created a sort of synergy between what the people who are the you know associates, as they were, uh, working on the ground level with the Chinese in the in China and in America, in that yeah they're have been raised uh, with, with very vastly different ideologies, but the purpose for which they do the things they're doing have the same end goal mm. um, to create a unifying thing at this. Because ultimately, I think the film's trying to say, you know, there is an equality with those workers, and, and ultimately they just are hoping for something. Like well, he says, Like he says in the end, you know, we want to travel where he says, you know, the younger, younger gener- generations yeah. want to travel where they can or buy whatever they can. And that that speaks to the younger generations of here, just being having the freedom to be removed from the constraints of, of money um, and just being able to work to live. You know, a complete trust with the point of to live life to work, is yeah. to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think this film does kind of, I mean, I don't think it does fail. I think it kind of, I, I think it maybe needed to be more sufficient. I mean, more efficient in saying in saying there's an equal level there, um, and more pointing to the fact of like these people at the higher level are consolidating ideas under one central mind is is the problem. You know, when right. everything is driven by this human fucking centipede of <laughs> like, what's that snake eating it eating its own tail? But it's yeah, like, what's that called? It's shit. 
Yeah. It's child's shit is what well, he's eating. I mean, I thought you were going to say, when you were going to say, you guys like, I wish this film were more something. And I thought you were going to say sophisticated. And I was going to yeah, like, I mean, say that was fair. like very accurate because I think this film does need to be a little more sophisticated. Like, so the movie, the the thing, the art object, I suppose, as I would put it, although it's not an art object, it's an anthropological study, is um, Barbara Ehrenreich's uh, Nickel and Dimed. Like that book that she wrote about like working in like working as a waitress for like a number of I forget what the, how much time it was, but we're really getting inside of like this kind of um, tips and, and minimum wage you know hand to mouth existence. Um, I think to, I think there could have been a better or a more like you kind of said in which I kind of jumped on a more sophisticated way to present like a uh, a more sophisticated idea other than just like because there's actual there's actual they want you to say uh, I don't want to say this wrong the filmmakers feel I think the same way that you feel about the chairman the same way that I feel about the chairman but I feel like it goes out of its way to not say it and I feel like an analyst some kind of talking head, but like a, a good, well-regarded talking head, kind of laying down an analysis of like the harm that this kind of thinking is causing, not just like this community in Dayton, Ohio, but like the larger manufacturing community, um, um, countries, the whole global, like unified, globalized capitalist market, even, you know, they're communists in China. Clearly, they can't be so communist because <laughs> that guy has more money than God, um, or so he, he perceives himself to. Um, and he's just a single individual. Um, it would have been it would have been nice to have that, you know what I mean? Instead of just kind of like leaving these fairly vague but present ideas just kind of sitting on 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 the screen. Yeah, I think this film's too afraid to kind of like editorial. I think so too. Time. Like, it's, but in, in that regard, though, it seems very appropriate for a former president to have, like, put a stamp of approval on something that's so weirdly political. Yeah. Like, it doesn't want to step on anybody's dick while trying to really, like, make it's, a broader point like, about, like, we like, shouldn't do this. But I'm not going to say I shouldn't do it. It's trying to subtly say, you know, like, what everyone's thinking after watching it without ever, you know, assertively or directly saying yeah, it. This would be a good place to transition into talking about, like, the Dave Chappelle Stand-up oh special. Like about how you shouldn't assertively say something sometimes? Yeah, yeah. Um, Don't watch that. But I think it was... I, I think it's... If uh, you want to watch the downfall of a good comedian to terribleness, watch that new special. I just like to... I'll, I'll watch... i just watch Killing Them Softly again. And I'll just pretend that Dave Spill used to be really witty. Yeah. And didn't just talk about how famous he was all the time and how sad he was for all the other famous people that he knows that are having... They're having hard times. Not just they're um, having hard times because they're being held accountable for their actions, yeah. and that's and that's I, you know, that's I, I actually I think that works for this is is the fact that there is you know the chairman doesn't have to have any accountability, doesn't have to, and I don't he think is this, able to exist inside yeah. his own echo chamber. And this movie's and not really holding the, accountable. I think, I think at the end is trying to say that like the, he exists, he has this moment of of thinking you know like like we said that he could have been doing wrong. But he exists beside his own echo chamber, and he has surrounded himself with people who subscribe to his ideas, and he's never held account- self accountable for mm-hmm. that, you know. And 
a union or some sort of group that could have forced that or, or, or you know, established that. Um, and that's the thing. So maybe you said before evaluation. It's, of it. it's not a polemic, but maybe sometimes I kind of wanted it to be a polemic. Yeah. You know what I mean? Maybe I sometimes wanted Sherrod Brown to come back and be like, this shit's fucking wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Instead of like subtly politically saying that, like, oh, I support a union in a place that clearly doesn't want a union, now hand me the big blue scissors. Like, he should come back and be like on the floor of that place, or like there should be video of him like standing on a street corner or, with like union leaders or something or, like know, that. You know, had this film taken place under the administration of anybody that was a um, human being, I don't even want to say quasi decent human being, I mean an actual functioning person. Uh, you know, like maybe the chairman gets hit with a hundred million dollar fine from the EPA for his, you know, for what they talk about is his uh, dumping chemicals. And yeah, yeah. Thing. something that actually hits him. I'm willing to bet our current president and the chairman are pretty good friends, oh. and that he's stayed at Mar-a-Lago a number of times. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he called the chairman and told him to avoid Alabama this week. <laughs> yeah, why? What's happening in Alabama? That hurricane's going to hit oh, in Alabama. Yeah, yeah. You hear about that? How? Trump really doubled down on the fact that Alabama, which is by the National Weather Service completely out of the way of the hurricane under all models, it's going it's, down. It's going. It's going to get hit by some it's strong bummer. winds. I'm sorry, Alabama. I'm sorry. Yeah, maybe you should vote better next time. Maybe this hurricane wanted to come. This is God. They voted for Doug Jones. Yeah. Okay. Keep doing that. But this is God smiting you for for Donald Trump. Seriously. God talked to me and said, "This is him." You can't say that because that makes you like one of those people that thought that like Katrina was like God's wrath for whatever, for everything. Maybe maybe it, it was at that time. That's fine, but it's now. I've been told that this hurricane. Get it together, from Alabama. Donald Trump. All the states that were re- voted for Donald Trump that are hit by this hurricane did you just, caused by Donald Trump. Did you read the thing? all the states that hit by it caused that voted for Hillary Clinton? It's it's just a natural weather phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Did you read the thing about... Which, you know, I don't know is. why we're going into this, but did you read the thing about Poland? No. <laughs> Where, like, Mike Pence is over there for, like, an 80th, you know, anniversary of um, Germany's in- invasion of Poland. Um, Celebrating it? Well, so Donald Trump said, like, congratulations to Poland. <laughs> congratulations to Poland. Like, it's a great country. He's like, Congratulations. Oh man! All right, we gotta get out of here. We're, yeah, we're gonna we change the tone way of this podcast very quick. Uh, we'll, we'll be right back with Mario's number forty-nine. I believe. Nope. Oh, yes, my no, number. Oh, okay. no, we're back with my number forty-nine. What are your feelings on cinema therapy, Tom? And the 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 ability of film. <clears throat> To act either has a in a position of of mental health or in its ability to work as catharsis for a traumatic incident. I'm pretty sure my one through ten are all for that exact reason. I would absolutely. So I'm agree. pro. I'm pro your theory there. To me, film works in both the ways of catharsis and both often in the ways of terror. It has the ability to heal and the ability to hurt. Maybe not so much hurt in negative ways, but into tear asunder, as I talked about the chairman last couple minutes ago. Um, I'm ready. I don't literally mean that, by the way. Let me preface that. I just really don't like the guy. No, but if it's Don't sue me for libel. 
Is that, Actually, do sue us for libel. That'd be good <laughs> publicity. <laughs> uh, my name's Thomas Nolan. I live in. I'm Bethany. ready. I'm super ready. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, but to tear asunder uh, safety and ideas that we have framed our lives and rebuild anew. I have, for the longest time, suffered from a very minor form of generalized anxiety. Uh, I can still function pretty well. Um, we could call really... this podcast the Generalized Anxiety Podcast. Exactly, yeah. Me, me and Tom have a lot of generalized anxiety about a lot of things. But enough to where it at times can knock me down for a few mm. hours. Mm-hmm. And it forms itself almost always in the hypothetical, the that being the very detached philosophical question of death. No matter what it is, no matter what the anxiety may be, a new job, moving across the country after graduating college, uh, any sort of significant changes in my life, Mm -hmm. it always, regardless, manifests itself upon the question of death. Like a fear of death? Uh, Absolute misunderstanding and and disassociation from the reality of what death may be Mm. of of existence unto itself Mm -hmm. of the potential worthlessness of of life at all Mm -hmm. in the face of it uh the the contrast of the theological ideas versus metaphysical ideas contrasted with the scientific and real-world basis by which we created, it manifests itself in just various ways at a 1,000 miles per hour. Mm-hmm. It is a tangled yarn of nonsense. <laughs> and it's a coping mechanism often to not deal with the anxiety at hand because, mm-hmm. you know, really it's not something worth worrying about to any great extent in your normal day-to-day life. And this is why... I want to talk about cinema therapy because the fear of death for me has been something that film has been in a way to both create great harm in the sense of shaking that little pepper shaker, Uh, most notably one day in late 2007, I and a friend drove all the way to Sacramento, some 160 miles from Reno, uh, around 160 miles, to watch a nice little comfortable double feature of The Savages and The Diving Bell and The Butterfly, both films that are thematically buried within the question of death and or the loss of freedom that comes with the expectation of life, uh-huh. uh, being trapped in your own body due to you know a, a, a significant sort of stroke. Um, that was a day in which the anxiety of death was, you know, catapulted to the nth degree. Mm -hmm. You know, and death in itself, the theme of death has been something that's gone all the way from Igman Bergman's Seventh Seal all the way to Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. And so sometimes I'll watch these things and they won't hit me. You know, they'll either just be there, Mm -hmm. they'll exist, they, they won't raise questions. But sometimes... That film has such a profound effect on shaping how I think that it sort of eases the ills Mm -hmm. of the fear. 
And for me, the film that best captures a way in which I can greatly deal with the ever-pressing question of death and life is the 2006 Darren Aronofsky film, The Fountain. A special tree grows hidden. The tree of life. They say whoever drinks of its sap will live forever. Tom is married to Izzy, and she is dying from a brain tumor. This does not sit well with Tom. He does not like it. Who says, death is a disease. It's like any other. And there's a cure. A cure. And I will find it. He's unsuccessful. Izzy passes. Tom rages. But before she passes, she presents him a book that she's been working on, that she's told him about. It's the story of Tomas Verde, a conquistador who is on the quest for the tree of life, the source of immortality. And she asks him to finish it. We are presented with Tomas's journey to find the tree of life. Deep within New Spain, in the Mayan temples. And also we are presented with a man who looks vaguely similar to Tom some 500 years into the future as he chases towards a dying star wrapped in a nebula. Zaboba. The place of the dead. Or as... The, under, the underworld. Or as he says it earlier in the movie, Zaboba. Zaboba? Huh? Huh? Star? Huh? I didn't get this seriously. Carrying a tree inside of a bubble, surrounded by really closely shot chemical reactions. <sighs> Fucking great idea, Arnofsky. Being Finally merging at the end upon the acceptance and the realization with a tear in his eye of I'm going to die. There's a lot of questions that stand with this movie is this three different men are you asking me is it no it's this hypothetical rhetorical is it three different men is it one man is it just the past and the future as was written in the original screenplay and some sort of you know present day mechanism to hold it all together I take for it the same way that Matt Goldberg takes for it from the Collider. Where Noski is showing us isn't a guy in the distant future getting hit by an exploding nebula. He's showing us in the abstract the act of accepting death and how it can lead to creation. Tom is now pending the end of the fountain, the novel by which Izzy is writing. 
whereas Tomas reaches the Tree of Life, greedily drinking its sap to heal his wounds, and is overwhelmed by the power of the fountain, and dies in its thrall. Like Isabel's story, it's autobiographical. She begins a tale about a woman hoping that her beloved could save her, but Tommy ends it almost as a mea culpa. For Tommy, Tomas is undone, much like he was, by refusing to accept death and chasing eternal life at his own peril. And I see this as a story of just present-day Tom. I do too. Weird. Who's writing a story, and then within his own mind, seeing that future. I see that future has his mind grappling with it. I, He's, and, yeah. and the way I find this is it's surrounded by chemical reactions, as though it's the electromagnets, you know, not the electromagnets, as though it's the, magnet, the electricity in his brain sparking around trying to make sense I, I think the, the structure meaning yeah. as a purpose as a I think the structure of the end is is oh, very well, significant yeah, yeah. here yeah, and then and the fact that this ends you know right I'm saying that like the yeah I think for all the people that want to say like he's really here and he's really there and like these are like the same person and blah 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 um I mean, it is no, I think same, it is, it is. Yeah, the yeah, same yeah, yeah but like but the idea that he's been alive for like 1500 years or whatever it is um yeah, and it's it's always struck me about like one of the best movies about writing ever made, and like the power of story and the power of like of of that kind of creation. So continue. Tom is is also a man who can't accept failure. He is a man who who utterly detests his inability to cure death. Who utterly detests even the speaking of death of of life undone um darren arnosky said in a phone in a movie phone interview with uh then girlfriend or wife were they married rachel vice yeah i think they were married um but i could be wrong asked about the concept of of where this this movie came from the 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 old you know the origin of his thought Mm -hmm. process and he talked about how you know the eternal quest for for youth um by modern man, uh, the eternal quest for you know never aging, never approaching that precipice of the end, um, you know, and he's moved by that kind of like fountain of of youth storyline and by the tree of life, the tree mm-hmm. of life ideology that's propagated by Yigzrael and the tree of life and knowledge in Genesis mm-hmm. and you know the uh, life tree, um, the Sibyl, I believe, or I can't remember the tree is in, in the Mayan culture, and a lot of this ideology comes from you know the thoughts of first man and and sacrifice and rebirth of the first man from the um the mayan creation myth of the papa vol um and a major part of that in the god's work upon creating a man by which to worship them is the attempts of both um failure leading to success Mm -hmm. you know there's four levels of creation uh the creation of animals first and they ask them to speak and to praise them but all the animals speak the wrong languages they speak discordantly kind of echoing the tower of babel that Mm -hmm. you know whereas in in christianity and judeo-christianity god tears asunder uh, uh, together knowledge here in, in the Mayan populist it's it's you know they were born this way and then they create the mud people they can only look one way though and they fall apart and they when you know whenever they touch water and they spoke without knowledge um, 
And then they created the wood effigies. You know, they looked and walked and reproduced like men, but they lacked heart nor mind. And finally, you know, uh, us, uh, men, the women were created by, from the maize, you know, from the corn, from the, the food of life, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, that cycle of failure and, and reproduction and, and the cyclic nature of it all, um, is exemplified here, you know, that, that kind of within Tom's mind in that he keeps failing to, you know, you see him attempt to to work on on, on solving the problem of death, and he keeps you know keeps getting close and failing and, and whatnot, and loses his wife, and eventually, the success is just the ability to accept the finality of it all, mm-hmm. but to accept the beauty, by which, you know, from death comes, new life. Um, it's it's kind of, a nice, correlation to it is is you know. Dylan Thomas saying, do not go gentle to that good night, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Contrasted with Peter uh, Matheson, you know, author of the Snow Leopard, co-founder of the Paris Review, my ambition is to die the way a ripe fruit lets go of the tree. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that knowledge of just the ability to let go of the terminus of it all and just to accept life as it is. We must mm-hmm. die in order for something new to arise. Well, that's great because, I mean, I'm, uh, we're going to talk about this movie again, um, unfortunately. In a completely for, different way. And unfortunately for people who, like, really hate The Fountain but really love our, our podcast, you're going to get another one of these in, like, 30-something weeks. Um, there is another, I mean, there is another analogy, metaphor to writing in there. <clears throat> and then it's, it's the... You know the the idea of the blank page. You know what I mean? It's the and this I- is similar to what he would later do with Mother. Like like Cal- there was there's right. a writer kind of there's still a writer parallel and uh, more heavily defined Your, writer parallel. It's a it's a it's a passing. I don't want to say passing of the torch because it's a that is a terrible saying. It doesn't really fit here, but it's the passing of an idea from one person to another. That person's trying to honor that other person's life through the act of creation through the act of finishing this book, writing that 12th chapter, what happens to these to these characters, to this specific character and the universe that, that character inhabits? <clears throat> it is, it must feel like how he felt when he walked into that hospital after Izzy died and was just like, death is a disease, it can be cured like anything else, let's get to work. You know what I mean? And he works until the lights go out. You, you, know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's all right there. And then each successive present Tom moment is in a different place, and he's doing something totally different, and he's just flailing around looking for the right answer. And the right answer is that kind of relief that you feel when like you stumble upon the thing that you've been looking for the whole time. And for him, it's that future Tom going like, I'm going to die. And, like, the, I mean, it's, I don't know, we should have a separate podcast about, like, the greatest endings in the history of film. The ending of The Fountain is one of the greatest <laughs> endings in the history of film. And it's that that catharsis that you were talking about for him transmitted to us, like, fuck, it can all be new again. It can all be real again. Like, we could, we could, we could get there. Like, we just have to keep working at it 
and keep thinking about it and keep doing all of our starlit Tai Chi until we get to the knowledge that, like, it's all right. Yeah, and, and, all and, right. and, and I think that's actually exemplified um, in the idea of finishing a story. You know, there yeah. is there is a finality. There is the, the for most novels, the, the final period upon which punctuates the the end, you mm-hmm. know? You, you you put the book down, you, you close the laptop, you are done with it. It has it has reached its purpose. Mm-hmm. It has you know and that that could be defined as the artistic life expressed, uh, you know, the, the thing sure, that yeah, reaches yeah. its purpose. Fortunately, as real life is wont to do, it doesn't always follow that. Um so so it is kind of, of a, a palpable way of understanding that finality and, and finishing that novel is essential for him to to release to to you know to realize that upon this end can come new beginnings well, that, fun- you know planting the seed on Izzy's grave you know life can come from death that the the cure as it were to death is the release of what is the now and what is to be and that is you know something that that for me was profound in the sense that you can take with that what you will philosophically theologically uh metaphysically um or even you know removing the ephoral from a really sort of stone ground perspective of death is the end you know you can take from that everything um in the sense of you know from a judeo-christian belief it's it's the transition to a next life Mm -hmm. from uh, a reincarnation standpoint it's, it's the rebirth into a new life from the materialist standpoint, it is that, you know, your existence ends, but from you will come something else. Uh, from the nihilist, it's like, whatever, it's going to happen again. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Real, yeah. real bump. They're just, they're, they're all, they already dealt with it. Um, <laughs> and that, for me, spoke profoundly. Whenever I, uh, the, the little, I would, you know, I... Whenever like those those fears of death come in, I realize once that it's a silly thing to worry about. It's going to happen. But at the same time, by which the re accept beauty with birth, um, no matter how gross and nasty of a thing it is, you've seen it. It's very gross. Uh, but re commonly accepted has the beauty of life. With the beauty of life must come the it's the, the articulation and, and beauty of death. And it's. But it's beauty, though, in a way that it isn't going to happen. Even if you have ten kids, each kid feels like you're... We've done 64 of these episodes. You know what I mean? We're going to do this a bunch of times. I eat every day. You know, I shit every day. I do a bunch of stuff every day. Um, every day? Every day. <laughs> every Are day. Are supposed to? <laughs> Not like every three weeks? You should go to the doctors. Mario obviously goes to the doctors every three weeks. Um, there is a there is an element of of um, not being able to understand or wrap your head around something you're only ever going to get a chance to do once. You know what I mean? Maybe twice. And this is not the same thing as like I may never go to Disney World again. I better go on Space Mountain, even though the line is really long. Or I don't know, are the lines at Space Mountain long anymore? I don't know. I, it's I not, would assume. It's not like that. Everyone wants to see that. I'm going to take man. this opportunity to go to Paris with this group of whatever because I may never get a chance to go to Paris again. It's not like that. It is literally uh, the the fulfillment of another human 
existing where a second ago there was not another human. And that is the same thing, I think, as what is experienced, what you are talking about and what is experienced in the fountains. Like, you're never going to get to do this again. Like, you might not want to, you only get to do this one time. And the fountain's kind of suggesting, like, that Thomas or Tomas doesn't ever want to do it. And he doesn't realize that, like, he has to do it or he's uncomfortable with the idea of doing it until he's not. Um, and that is where, like, the inherently, believe in God or not, the inherently spiritual idea of birth and death comes in. You know what I mean? Like, this is just it. Like, this is the one time. Like, have, unless you have a kid every day, like, you only get to do it, like, a finite amount of times. And if you have a normal amount of kids, and this is not to denigrate the people that have, like, 15 kids that might be listening to our show, but, um, you know, even still, at some point, you're never going to do that again. Like, it's just gone. It's it's just over. And at the same time, it's like without death, there is no life in Mm -hmm. the sense of conservation of matter states that some things are going to need to metamorphosis into other things. Mm -hmm. You know, like a caterpillar goes into the cocoon to become a butterfly, you know, and first becomes a big molten pile of ooze. So must a person become a big Bolton pile of ooze by which to make new life. Eric Carl skipped that part in The Very Hungry Caterpillar. He just ate the pizza and then became, went into his cocoon. Well, no, people don't realize that if, he, if a <laughs> caterpillar eats pizza, it just becomes a butterfly automatically. <laughs> but that, that's, it, it's, it's something that, you know, I've always kind of accepted uh, from, from a knowledge standpoint, from, from an understanding standpoint, but to see it so beautifully and and sveltly you know it's it's, it's a really so tight, trim yeah it's, it's like a, a trim hour and film. what a 36 minutes or something yeah, or so uh and, and such a such but at the same time in such grandeur which we'll talk about in, in a in i think in excess um when we get to tom's film we're, we're kind of avoiding some of the more aesthetic I mean, you should feel it. free to talk about whatever you want to talk about oh no i think i think that's safe because because you uh, you're more profoundly moved by some of the aesthetic the, the, the aesthetic nature of it i um, did not yeah i did not have any of this like the same kind of philosophical or, or emotional reactions to it um from like your perspective at all yeah and that's why that's a why a lot of my stuff it. is like you know yeah that's why i want to keep it to you know the philosophical because i i love this film Mm-hmm. From an aesthetic standpoint as well, but to have it, but to you know, to say that to have, you know, my fears, but also kind of, um, intellect, uh, my generalization or intellectualizing of that thought process, codified in this kind of film, you know, mm-hmm. in, in this film that's so aesthetically pleasing and, and so trim, um, you know, just just. Is, is is utterly engaging and, and is utterly a you know day quill for the soul sort of thing well, um, and it's probably a lot it has a probably your reaction to it probably has a lot to do with chicken soup for the soul would have been there yeah um, <laughs> do they still make those books I don't know but I do take a lot of day quill um, I mean you put it in a bowl it becomes a soup the <laughs> I drink a whole bowl of Dayquil every day. Um, Tommy, so I you get should up, see a doctor. I should. <laughs> um, especially that, that, and, that and the shitting thing. Um, 
I don't know. We'll save. Yeah, we'll save like all the aesthetic comparisons and like all the other stuff for episode whatever. Eleven. Yeah. But what about? So what about you? What philosophically do you take from it? Um, if anything. I don't know. It's one of those. So I mean, we could. As uh, we'll have a little bit of a segment here. I find myself so overwhelmed by this movie that I almost can't think of stuff. Like it's almost hard for me to. And we're going to talk a little bit about this idea. In when we talk about my forty nine, is that my um, my experiential emotions watching this movie every single time I watch this movie um, are almost too powerful for a movie that I've seen as many times as I've seen this movie. Um, it is it is there, but to relate it to what you're talking about, there is a sense by the end of the movie that like not only is Thomas being reborn, but I am also in some way like being reborn as like a, f- a film lover. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or just like a lover of art or a lover of things that are just way more difficult than like they really needed to be, but like you're so happy that they are that difficult. Um, and isn't, isn't that almost just in a way inexplicable how some films you could go and watch in a theater, leave, and, and it be entertaining, um, but never really do anything for you. And some films like this, an hour and 36 minutes, and it just tore me apart like a house of Legos and rebuilt yeah, yeah, it in yeah. a new shape. I, I remember going, seeing this movie alone, because I always saw everything alone, because the orange cinemas always uh, were too big for these kinds of independent movies that nobody wanted to see. Um, and like feeling like my head had just like you know just split in half you know what I mean like I couldn't process everything that I saw in that movie like it's one of the DVDs that I've owned for and like used like the most times that I've owned it because I always feel like I've had this feeling about um, lots of art like Paul Auster's The New York Trilogy for you know as one example Um, that if I can just go into it again if I can every time I go into it I think like I'm gonna get it I'm gonna get it this time I'm gonna figure all the shit out and then I'm gonna know all the things that I need to know and my life is gonna be perfect um and The Fountain is one of those movies for me where like I'm just so in I'm but I can never get it I can never get there because I'm too in awe of like what is happening you know what I mean and part of it is because I know how it got made and, like, the kind of compromise that Darren Aronofsky had to make on, like, the second go-around through trying to get this fucking movie like made. Losing, was it Brad Pitt? Well, Brad Pitt was originally going to star in it. And losing they were, $50 million of budget. Yeah, they were going to shoot it in Australia, and they were making all these sets, and then it was just like, no, we're shooting all the Mayan stuff on a soundstage now. We're going to use CGI for all the stuff. But it so fucking works. Um, that I can't feel... I just feel... I just love it. Like, it makes me feel so happy that it exists. Um, that I've never been really in touch with, like, the death part of it at all. Um, because it makes me... I feel so much joy when I watch it. Which is, it's I a suppose, weird film, a weird thing for, for this movie. For a theme that is... For a theme. For a film that's so so utterly uh, thematically about loss and grief, it is, at the end, a, a joyous reflection on... It one hundred percent is a person, and that, and and that the, is the intent. And in that regard, like Hugh Jackman is kind of like the perfect guy 
to play. I, I can't imagine this movie with Brad Pitt. No. Because at some point, Hugh Jackman needs to realize, like, Thomas needs to realize he needs to feel that joy himself and that relief. Brad Pitt isn't going to get there. But Hugh Jackman, like, totally fucking got And there. I don't know if Brad Pitt was, would have been able to tear him. I mean, yeah, he could have, but, like, the level by which Hugh Jackman's able to tear himself up be so torn apart. Yep. But then, and, and you know, we'll talk next week about not in two weeks about how um, Brad Pitt can do that. But then to turn it, it's a different kind end, of torn apart. Yeah. But to then turn it at the end, um, to like release, like he could he, uh, catharsis, as we say that 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 just sudden tearing, uh, like a good sort of tearing. Um, I, I I think Jackman was was the guy for it. Weirdly, it's weird. It's you know, it's Hugh Jackman. He was uh, you know in this when they made this movie, he was Wolverine, and what Australia and maybe the Oklahoma redo on Broadway. Like he wasn't yeah. like he was a he was a star, but he wasn't like Hugh Jackman. Yeah, he had seen, this movie I mean, I mean, definitely didn't make I him can't Hugh Jackman. Was a Darren Aronofsky saw him on not Oklahoma, but had seen him on stage doing something else and was like, "That's my guy." Yeah. So. Um, but I mean, I I love I I deeply love this movie. So, as we will see, <laughs> as we were talking about, yeah, I'm not sure. Speaking I make it all the way through that, of films you deeply love, we'll be right back. With Tom's number forty nine. Welcome back. Um, I'm not going to do a big preamble because um, we're going to have a, a big post amble here. Um, my number 49 is the Coen Brothers 2013 film Inside Lewin Davis. Explain the cat. What's its name? I, I don't know. He snuck out the door. Do you think you're staying here tonight? Leaving. Oh. I was hoping to. So... I can't stay here tonight. If I had wings, I'd know it's done. What'd you say you played? Folk songs. Folk songs. Solo act? No, I had a partner. Threw himself off the George Washington Bridge. George Washington Bridge? You throw yourself off the Brooklyn Bridge, traditionally. George Washington Bridge. Who does that? I had a man. Um, this is one of the evenings where I'm not going to talk a lot about like when I saw this movie and how I, you know, what theater I was doing, I saw it at or what I was doing when I went to see it or after the, um, I watched this movie, I believe on Netflix, uh, a couple of years ago. Finally, I finally got around to seeing inside Lewin Davis. It was one of those things that was kind of kicking around my life. Um, like the one Coen brothers movie that you, I just haven't, I hadn't seen yet. I feel like everyone has maybe, maybe, you can tell me if this is you think this is true too, Mario. That like everyone has kind of like a Coen Brothers movie that they just kind of haven't gotten to yet, for like one reason or another. It's just kind of like, well, I didn't really get to that. Like I feel like for a lot of people, it's like the man who wasn't there. See maybe it. not everybody saw True Grit because it's like a western, and maybe not everyone see likes it. westerns. I know you you saw it. Um, did everyone see? Into- has people gone back to watch Intolerable Cruelty and see The Lady it. Killers and stuff like that? You you are not the person I'm talking. Hot Sucker Proxy. I bet you a lot of people haven't seen that. Which is a shame because Tim Robbins is very good. good. Yeah, that's Paul Newman. Paul Newman. Um, so we've talked a lot about doing towards the end of our 
little run here. A hundred list of like a pivotal scenes list. Like you and me talking about like the pi- those scenes that kind of just like are cemented in your head. And it's interesting that we were just talking about American Factory before because one of the scenes that's like a pivotal scene to me in movies is the scene from Michael Moore's uh, documentary, The Big One, when he confronts Phil Knight about like opening a, a, a shoe factory in, in Flint, Michigan. Um, it's a pivotal scene for me. Um, there's many pivotal scenes. I've, I feel like I've mentioned some on, in this podcast already. One of the really pivotal scenes of my existence, though, occurred when I saw Inside Lewin Davis. And it's a Coen Brothers movie. I, I have certain expectations for Coen Brothers movies. Even bad Coen Brothers movies are, are worth a watch for aesthetic reasons. You know what I mean? Intolerable like, cruelties. Just intolerable An cruelties. Intolerable cruelties is tough because it's very of its time. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't even really seem like a Coen Brothers movie. It seems like a romantic comedy starring George Clooney and Catherine Jesus Jones. It like, seems like their studio attempt, yeah. Um, but most of these later stuff, you know, you're going to watch it, even like Ballad of Buster Scruggs. If you don't like westerns, if you don't like anthology movies, if you don't like whatever, it's Coen Brothers. There's something in it that you're going to be like, huh, well, look at that. That was cool or that was funny or that was whatever or like that was weirdly violent but like i'm i have a good feeling about it because it looked cool and made me feel something weird um i was all in on inside lewin davis when i was watching it and i i i um think oscar we will talk about everything as we um talk about this movie I, I mean i think oscar isaac as the main character lewin davis a struggling folk singer in 1961 New York City. Um, this is one of the great film performances of this century, um, perhaps any century. It is um, it is deep beyond I think our understanding of 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 like humanity. I think there's there's depths there that like are never going to get plumbed. I don't know how he did it. I don't really want to know how he did it. I don't really fucking give a shit. But there are um, moments in that movie where Oscar Isaac is conveying. Um, not just Lewin's consciousness, which we can see on the screen, and not just his subconsciousness, which we associate with like the subtext of what he's doing, but a kind of um, deeper human feeling than you can really articulate. But I think that's the beauty of movies that you can kind of see it on the screen. Yeah, it's almost like with with that is a lot of people talk about facial acting, but it's almost as though he has control of corner of eye acting. You can almost see the measure by which Davis is thinking through Oscar Isaac's sides of his eyes. Like it, there's, I've never noticed that, but Watch maybe that's the thing. Watch it. Like but maybe that's the thing. This, you know like, what I mean? Manipulation of, of his eyes. I that's... just think it's, it's one of those things where like, they talk a lot about, I just took a Henry James class in school a couple of years ago. Whoa. Um, and they, no, no, I'm just talking about like, they always talk about people's countenance. You know what I mean? Nathaniel Hawthorne talked about people's physiognomy. Henry James is all about people's countenance. And and Oscar Isaac's Lewin Davis has a countenance that is deeper than almost anybody else's countenance like that I've seen on film. Maybe like Daniel Day-Lewis in something like The Phantom Thread or something where he's so fucked up inside that... And, and you can see it on screen. You know what I mean? That like the knots that he's twisted his, you see the, you his see inner the... life into without knowing that he was doing it has become unbearable. You now. see the flesh, the flesh broil because of the soul burning inside. Yeah, <laughs> very good. 
The Flesh Broils, the title of the episode. Um, but it's fucking there. So, Lewin Davis is, is frustrated. His, his uh, singing partner, Mikey Timlin, has, uh, he threw himself, as we heard John Goodman remark on, um, as Roland Turner, the, a, a jazz pianist, um, has threw himself off the Brooklyn Bridge, and, and, and Lewin Davis no longer has a singing partner, and he's gotten Gene, played by Carrie Mulligan, um, pregnant. Gene is, is in a relationship with Jim, played by the equally alluring and deep Justin Timberlake. <laughs> I couldn't say it. I couldn't do it. Um, the perfectly satisfactory Justin Timberlake. Um, he hitches a ride to Chicago. Things are not going well for him. He hitches a ride to Chicago to um, see Bud Grossman, who is a uh, stand-in for Albert Grossman, who actually ran the Gate of Horn Club in Chicago, and who was responsible for getting Peter, Paul, and Mary together and for a lot of big folk acts becoming big folk acts. And you can ride all Peter, Paul, Mary? Puff the Magic Dragon. Okay. Is that the one? Not the hand bone, right? Uh, Mamas and the Papas. That was Mamas and the Papas, yeah. Uh, I don't think he had anything to do with them. Uh, But maybe he did. I don't know. Um, He waits for Bud Grossman in Gate of Horn. Beautifully lit scenes there with just light streaming in from unknown locations like doors are just holes and you know heavens and don't you it's just perfect don't you love when filmmakers are able to visually show cold without the obvious well there's cgi breath yeah but without the obvious over is what i'm trying to say but just like lighting that it's such like yeah, oh, such it's like just a chill. dynamic sort of winter light. Like the light of winter is often not caught. Well, I would argue that not only is that light of winter not caught, but the details of winter are often not caught either. So, one of the scenes I love in this movie is when after Lewin is walking through the snow and he stops, he's in that diner and he's ordering a second cup of coffee. Like he takes, they show a close up of his shoes and his feet are all wet. Because I think in a lot of movies, it's just like, well, that guy walked through the snow and nothing ever happened to him ever. I'm thinking of a movie called The Revenant, where Hugh Glass just is in freezing cold waters all the time, and he's just like, yeah, I'm going to stay in these clothes forever, and they're just always going to be dry. My hands are going to be cold, I'm going to need to blow on them. My whole body will just dry off eventually. I'm wearing a hundred layers, but the top layer will also always be dry. You know how much body hair that man had? Probably none. Probably all rubbed off from all the action-packed adventures <laughs> he was on. Um, the bear carefully bit those off. Yeah. Um, he bit the hairy spots off. Um, so he gets to Chicago. He's waiting for Bud Grossman. Bud Grossman comes in and he says, I'm Lewin Davis. You know, um, sent you a copy of my record. I didn't get it. I didn't listen. What did you think? I didn't. I don't know what I think because I didn't listen to it. And he asked him to you know, gives him a copy, and he's like, well, just play me something. He's like, play me something from inside Lewin Davis, and, and, and Lewin plays um, the Ballad of Queen Jane, and um, he finishes it, and he finishes the song. He's not even playing his guitar anymore. He's just looking at, <laughs> he's just looking at Bud, staring at him, like, singing him this song about this woman who died because, like, she she knew it was either her or this baby and she asked to have an abortion and the king king henry the eighth said no you can't have an abortion because it's i need an heir um 
and this woman's dead and 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 Bud just looks at him and there's a perfect beat because F. Murray Abraham was playing Bud Grossman as the fucking best. Just says, I don't see a lot of money here. And then Lewin says, okay. And it, it kind of changed my life a little bit. And if it didn't change my life, it changed my viewing of everything that I had just seen. And it made it a deeper, more profound movie than I think even the Coen brothers understood that they had on their hands. So what the Coen brothers have, were setting out to do here, which is what they said, is that they wanted to make a movie about the like early 60s pre-Dylan um, village in New York City. They focused on the biography of um, Dave Van Ronk, the mayor of McDougal Street, a memoir that came out in 2005, um, Dave Van Ronk is a very famous folk singer. You know, um, Lewin sings a Dave Van Ronk song um, in the car with uh, with John Goodman's character. Um, his album cover, Inside Lewin Davis, is modeled after um, a Dave Van Ronk album cover of the same um, the same era. Um, they pulled some events from Dave Van Ronk's life to create this Lewin Davis biography here. Um, but all that stuff is bullshit. It's all total bullshit. It is not a, it is not a biopic of, of Dave Van Ronk. It is not a movie about 1961, you know, Greenwich Village folk scene. Um, it's just a movie about passion. It's just... I mean, like, plain and simple, and this, and it's just where the movie takes place. So I was listening to this podcast the other day about, about Quentin Tarantino's new movie, and they were, and this guy was saying, oh, I think it was Bill Simmons on the Bill Simmons podcast, he was talking to Wesley Morris, I think I talked about this already, he was saying, he, one of the things he wanted about, from Quentin Tarantino, he's like, oh, I want Quentin Tarantino to make a modern movie, about, like, what's happening in modern times, and, and, and comment on, on modern themes, and all this other stuff, um, and he's like, well, Quentin Tarantino has no interest in doing that. The same with the Coen brothers have no interest in doing that. The Coen brothers have no interest in making a movie about a guy who just wants to fucking play guitar and sing songs. It's his whole life. In, like, the modern times, you know what I mean? You set it. You set it in this period. And you extract from the idea that you're setting in that period, like, all these other themes and stuff like that. One of the reasons this movie has become so pivotal to me is I think my feelings for this movie run absolutely contrary to like the the general perceived belief of what this movie is about. I think a lot of people, and I'm going to reference Adam Naiman's um, essay about it in the Coen Brothers book. Have you seen this Coen Brothers book? This book really yet. ties rooms together. It's like this big, thick coffee table book about the about like the Coen Brothers movies up to um, Hail Caesar. It's really great, but he. His essay is really good in the sense that it really, it seems to synthesize the analysis, the general analysis of what this movie is, which is that it's a Coen Brothers movie. So hidden inside this movie are all these clues as to like what everything represents. There's the cat and how like, you know, he has that phone conversation with that woman after that, you know, um, the movie opens and Lewin's asleep and he leaves um, in this, in this, um, 
folk supporting couple's apartment. He's leaving their apartment and their cat runs out. And so he grabs the cat and he can't get back in because the door is locked. And so he calls the guy and he's like, oh, just tell him that Lewin has the cat. And the woman says, Lewin is the cat. And so on and on and on we go where all these reviewers and all these thinkers of film are lining up like the solitary nature of the cat to Lewin's solitary nature and like how a cat would do something like, you know, climb up a fire escape and hop into a window and Lewin to get into Gene's apartment, um, you know, climbs up the fire escape and hops in the window and he's like leaving the cat and he just wants to store this cat in her house for a little bit while he goes and does a bunch of stuff while he would do the same thing. There's all these parallels between him and the cat. Like Lewin is the cat. It's like the big thing. On top of that, you can have, there's, you know, the Gate of Horn was named after an Odyssey reference, which jumps right back into stuff that the Coens love to do. Like, there's all these connecting dots. Although the Coens have famously said they haven't read the Odyssey. <laughs> yeah, of course. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, of course they said they read yeah. the Odyssey. And they, that's what actually he comments, Adam Naiman comments in this essay about how the Coens have also said the only reason they added the cat into the movie is because the movie didn't have a plot. Like, as they were writing, they're like, yeah. well, this movie doesn't have a plot, we'll just throw a cat in there. And, you know, we'll just kind of give it a plot and blah, blah, blah. There's all this stuff. It bogs it down. All the analysis of this film bo- is, gets bogged down with all the stuff. And then on top of that, you have some of the people that were, like, living in the village in the 60s when Dave Van Ronk was there saying, like, this is not what it was like. It was a really happy time. Like, the movie's so sad. Why is everyone so sad? Blah, 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 blah. Um, complaining about that the movie isn't accurately representing what it was like to live there. And that kind of makes me... That stuff made me think, like... Because I don't think it was trying to accurately represent what it was really like to live there. I think it's a commentary on what those people... Like, who those people were. Like, the people that were, like the folk people what the folk scene in 1961 pre-Dylan really represented and I think in a lot of ways what the analysis of this movie tends to leave out which I'm going to throw back in there heroically I'm a movie hero is the it's a movie about music it's a movie about loving fucking music and if you're going to make a movie with all these musicians in it and all these songs you can't neglect the music and not just neglect the music, not just pay attention to the music from the way that Adam Nadam pays attention to the music in his essay, in the sense that he talks about, he analyzes, like, the song choice, which is probably accurate. There probably is a lot of, like, relationship between, like, the plot of the movie and the song choice. So, like, when he talks about, like, you know, the death of Queen Jane, he says, like, the barely restrained anguish with which Lewin performs the song seems to be about his professional desperation, or maybe his dead partner, until we clue into the lyrics referencing a troubled birth and the possible death of an heir. It seems to... It seems that Jean and her upcoming procedure uh, to say nothing of the illegitimate son that Lewin has recently learned that he has uh, is alive and well in Akron, Ohio, after the child's mother chose to skip her abortion, are very much on his mind. Um... And then it relates that stuff to uh, turning the page and having the, having the skip around. Um, and then it relates that. It's like, it says, The death of Queen Jane was designed to look forward as it reaches back. And then, uh, like they say, like, oh, it was ahead of his time musically. Um, there are countless... And so then it relates to, like, the general idea of, like, Lewin Davis. is like there are countless 
stories of people who died penniless and years later, it was understood that they were actually amazing. So then it kind of jumps in. Emily into... Dickinson. Yeah. <laughs> Emily Dickinson. I don't think she was penniless, though. Basically. Well, she, I thought yeah. her family had some money. I think her family had some money, but she was... I mean, she wasn't... I think she was her family at that point. Yeah, that's so Because she wasn't married at all. Yeah. Um, they just... Everyone... Because it's a Coen Brothers movie, and I, you can speak to this. You know what I mean? Like, you are a Coen Brothers fan. Like, we are haven't even talked... Not that to, big. We haven't even talked about your Coen Brothers movies yet. You know what I mean? <clears throat> you know what I'm saying? Like I keep forgetting we haven't. There's I, so many of them. I know. Everyone attaches all this shit to Coen Brothers movies. Four? And I think... I just... I think it's... When he said, I don't see a lot of money here, the first thing that occurred to me is, what? That was so amazing. Like, how can you not see, like, a lot of money here? How can you not see the potential of this guy? It was so good. Um, it doesn't, like, as opposed to what Adam Naiman said, like, it doesn't really matter what the song was. His performance... If you look at all the performances, just from a musical perspective, if you look at all the performances throughout the whole movie, the only person who's putting any kind of emotion in his performances is Lewin. Everyone else is just giving rote performances of old songs that everybody knows. And, you know, he says, like, if it's, if it's, if it's, if it's old, what does he say? You know, he makes that comment about how if it's old but, like, sounds new or whatever, it's like a folk song. If it's, if it's never been new but it sounds old, it's, it doesn't matter. Um, it's a folk song. Everyone else is singing all these old songs. And like Adam Naiman comments, he doesn't really kind of make that link that everyone's singing old songs. He just says that like Lewin is singing old songs. Lewin sang a really old song to Bud Grossman. He was supposed to impress him because this guy can make him a star, but he sang him an old song. Um, but none of that stuff matters. Everyone's singing old songs and there are people that are becoming stars. You know what I mean? Like that's the whole, that's the bitch of it. Is that he, is that he's not getting to the same position that all these other people are getting to being singing the same types of songs but singing them better than he is um which leads me to believe and so one of the things that i don't think adam Naiman or anybody else talks about when they talk about this movie is like <clears throat> some of the things like in the opening scene of the movie when he's singing um hang me oh hang me is like the weird blank staring faces of the people like in the in the gaslight, you know what I mean, or the fact that like the gaslight is always full, regardless of who is playing, or like when he's at that the Gorfine's house and he starts laying into um, that song he sang with Mikey, like they're you know they're I don't know if it's, a, if it's their hit, but maybe their signature song or whatever, like everyone just kind of relaxes into this fey, you know, or I don't mean fey, or this kind of faux like emotional like, feeling about, about what they're listening to. And that woman even says to him, like, isn't singing supposed to be, like, an expression of joy? Um, and I think he... It is supposed to be an expression of joy. And this whole move... But it's also... Can be an expression of anguish. It could be an... And to tie into what you were saying, it could be an expression of... Um, resignation. Like a... a, a, a deep psychic resignation it could be an expression of a lot darker emotions than just like simply happiness or simply um you know 
the knowledge that things are going to be all right and sung in a bright, shiny key with like three part harmonies. Um, your favorite songs could be at the end of the movie turned into like really rough blues songs. You know what I mean? Um, which links directly into the idea that like Dylan shows up at the end of the movie. You know what I mean? And like, so while everyone's criticizing Lewin for being a huge asshole through the whole movie, I hate to break it to everybody coming up, but Dylan was a huge asshole to everybody for most of his life. Even Allen Ginsberg? I think he was a huge asshole. To, I think Allen Ginsberg and him were huge assholes to everybody. Yeah, I think they could be friends with each other. Dylan had friends, but Dylan was also like a huge jerk. You know what I mean? He was probably exactly like Lewin Davis was. You know what I mean? I think this movie is about the dichotomy between the people that are really feeling it and the people that are pretending to feel it. You know what I mean? And how the people that are really feeling it sometimes get... Their feelings are too real. People don't know what to do with their actual feelings. Um, And so they they get kind of pushed aside. So if I were to say that this is a Coen Brothers movie full of stuff, I would argue that the stuff is, the stuff is visual. The stuff is, is, is in the songs. It's in the performances. It's not in the Easter eggs. It's not in the allusions. It's not in like the literary bullshit that everyone just kind of always heaps on top of the Coen Brothers, is what I would say. A Serious Man is about allusions and literary stuff. What's that one? It's a movie. They okay. mean. I see it. Um, but this one is not. And I think people like to think that it is. And I feel very... At- and So I think one of the reasons that this movie is pivotal is I feel very attached to my feelings about this movie. Like, into the point where, like, I really feel very correct. And I feel like everyone else is really missing the power of this movie because they're focused on the crap and they're not focused on how Oscar Isaac sings the shit out of some of these songs. You know what I mean? They're focused on the metaphors and not what's actually being offered to you. Go. So, for me, the Coen brothers, you know, they, they do a lot of... Falling in you know, very philosophical films like, like No Country for Old Men and Serious Man, um, you know, Burn After Reading comes slightly before um, A Serious Man. But things like Burn After Reading and Inside the Wind Davis and Hail Caesar represent to me more of, of the plainly told narrative. Um, when they were originally casting Inside the Wind Davis, they didn't want a classically trained actor. They didn't want someone who was... They wanted someone more raw. They wanted a more musical presence. Well, yeah, well they want someone who can act and like actually be a musician. Yeah, but they didn't want... like. A kind of known sort of face right. um and it wasn't until you know oscar isaac came in played a couple of the songs played some more of the songs had some talent with the music even t bill burnett was like this guy no you know he knows I think, shit, what yeah. do you say i think you found your hitler mm-hmm. um <laughs> quoting you know the producers um and and the film in itself just to me rep- represents everything you're saying it, it's it's a it's a story that doesn't need that examination of course the things he's singing about deal with the present um moments of his life because that is what it's a, a move that's, I mean, what a, that's what a fucking musician is gonna do a struggling musician yeah. of any sort even with like one success is always gonna write about things pertinent to the moment and they're intelligent filmmakers so they're obviously gonna have things mean 
like means something. And it doesn't, it doesn't even mean anything. It doesn't no. even necessarily mean anything. It just means that Lewin Davis has this connection to this and like but any writer means... would do would have some sort of any writer who's going to be earnest unto himself. And I would point this out too like as people that like are generally you know nihilistic in their feelings and miserable and blah 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 blah. Um, you can still be a miserable asshole and really feel the shit out of things. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? So, like, yes. It's often it's oftentimes the overwhelming way by which you feel things yes. that makes you a miserable asshole. So you can be a miserable asshole and still feel weird about the fact that, like, you have, like, maybe a baby somewhere and, like... There's an abortion. You might want to sing a song about it. And because you might, the only instead way... of having the lyrics be representative of you trying to be a star, you're letting your yourself out. You know what I mean? Yeah, it it the is only way what's you can inside Lewin Davis. Cope. And that, that's why, you know, that's why the album's called that. And the only way to cope with the world you see in general is to be a miserable asshole. You know, like he, like he's an eternal. He's an, like, like Isaac Isaac kind of interpreted the character an island unto himself, and that mm. that is true. Not so much in that he's so emotionally separated, but that he's so emotionally overwhelmed. Yeah, this, this entire film's just him being overwhelmed by things around him, and he's being overwhelmed by people who are kind of like clinging to that, clinging that have this kind of like falsity to them. You know, John Goodman's great role in Turner. You know, just he's very good. He's just maybe not you know Barton Fink levels of of. Of John Goodman, but still or Walter just, levels of John yeah, Goodman. Yeah, exactly. Um, but he has, you know, he has this ostentatious sort of disin, you know, ingenuity to himself. He's 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 a real facsimile of a person. He's very fake and very like there is there's there's no truism with him. Yeah, you know, his and, truism and, is his addiction. Like that's like exactly. as true as he gets. Um, and Lewin Davis is surrounded by these people who are just. You know, even as nice as the Gorfins are, and as welcoming as they are, they're, they're all Bonies. just fucking dimension. Yeah, so dimensionalist. Well, the guy that owns the Gaslight, he's just like, I don't get it. He's like, Oh, what do you think of these guys? I like their sweaters. And he's like, Or and he's like, Oh, so- Jew, like Jim and Gina, I want to fuck her. Yeah, and even and you know, even finding out like, the, and when he finds out like Gene, uh, you know, had sex with Pappy, like that. It's not so much that somebody else had sex with her, but it's just like the the, the thought that he has the, whatever connection he could have to something is is gone again. Well, it's just um, like the idea, and he says like if you want to play the gaslight, and it's like it's not about for these people, it's not about the music, it's about the scene, and that's why like the Dylan. So like in the Adam Naiman thing, he's like he goes into this. He said the first line of his analysis of like the ending scene is like the kiss off is steeped in irony so dark that they have no bottom. No, it's like that's not true. So basically, the way I see this film is he's a struggling musician who can't function in in a normal society, obviously, because you know he's a fairly kind of fucked up guy who's overwhelmed by the day to day things. Has you know a person who's like a really strong sort of introvert would be. Mm-hmm. He, he, she shows himself. He's constantly surrounded by people who kind of like gaslight the idea oh. of um, his art and, 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 and want to be connected to that, want to be connected to this sort of genius that they see upon him, but don't really get it themselves. 
Um, he looks for some sort of connection but can never find it. He eventually goes to like Bud Grossman thinking like, oh, this guy will get it. But, and then Grossman... He doesn't get it either. But, and, I mean, to a degree, I think, I think Grossman kind of gets it. But I think Grossman is so... Uh, by that point... He's so, so ingrained in so the... So ingrained in the culture of, of what will make money and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. Cause, cause yeah, yeah. He, doesn't see, he sits there for a while and is engrossed by the performance. Well, and, so, and that's why the Coens fucking rule. Because, like, so it's, you just see Lewin playing for a while. And then they show Bud. I almost said F. Mary Abraham. Then they show Bud, played by F. Mary Abraham. And you, in, you can see him getting it. He gets it, yeah. And that's why he, Lewin then just, like... Throws everything out the fucking window. Is like I'm just gonna sing to you. I'm not even gonna play, not even gonna play guitar anymore. I'm just gonna sing in your face. And so like that's why it was so shocking to me. Was like I don't see a lot of money here. It's like because fuck money. And that's why. And that's why when he goes back, he goes to the merchant. He signs up for the merchant marines because then he's like fuck it. I'm I'm not. I don't function here. Right. And that's all presented on the level. Like this movie I see has absolutely on the level. Well, and, I- and like you don't need to see this like subtext to a Brothers movie when you're have such depth and, I, and such like perspective and such like base humanity yeah. with the plot that's presented and to I, you. And I've been I've <clears throat> again He's a fucking an, cat. Another yeah. I mean I guess there is a relationship between there. There is yeah, a very there's, easy there's a metaphorical relationship between him and the cat. Island unto himself, but it's 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 it merely feels like an addendum to the plot that's already presented right. to you. It's not the a cat, crux the cat of the movie. not being there you still come up with the same exact movie. He hits the cat on the road, or he thinks he hits the cat on the road on the way back from Chicago, and there's blood on the fender, but he looks into the woods and it's snowing. One of the great shots in you know, 21st century film is his face looking into like where the cat was. And he sees that cat get up and walk away. There is inherent symbolism and metaphor included in that shot. Yeah. There is. Because the Coen brothers are great. But, and I used to have a lot of problem with the circular, like, motion, like, the circular nature of this film, you know, that it kind of repeats itself. A kind of, like, extended sort of beginning in the end, yeah. Those bottomless ironies are not there in the same way that they're, like, the metaphor is there in that, seeing that cat. Um... We are now confronted with Dylan's presence there, the version of Lewin Davis who we will all accept, who everybody, regardless of his can- cantankerousness, regardless of how mean he is or difficult he is or how arrogant he is or whatever, we will all say he is the voice of a generation. Let's go. Um, the one thing I think that Adam Damon correctly points out in, the, in his essay is that like Dylan is singing an original song. It's the first original song that we get, like, really in the whole movie. You know what I mean? There's original arrangements, but everything else is um, kind of like a standard of the, of the era. Funnily enough, we are doing, as we've mentioned, a Stephen King episode next week. I've been rereading, like, my favorite Stephen King books. In Wizard and Glass, The Dark Tower 4, he quotes... Um, just randomly... Spoilers. Randomly on page, like, 280-something... Um, the lyrics to the Fare Thee Well song that he sings. You know what I mean? It's a folk standard. They didn't reinvent the wheel for this movie. Dylan reinvents the wheel. He pushes 
these people, these faux folk fans, into having to accept somebody like Lewin Davis. You know what I mean? He's pushing the whole community forward. Um, and it's one of the things that I think is lost. And that's why, and that's why that's great, that's what's great about like Davis, like watching him. Cause like Davis, yeah. there's this understanding that Davis didn't have that like little stroke to connect the time, you know, like, well, it almost seems like Davis is aware of, he's, a, he's, he's aware of how, with it. he's aware of how, what he's looking at, he makes a face. And again, like you said, the corner of the eye, there's the corner of the eye. Stuff he makes a face as he's walking out to see the guy that's gonna kick the shit out of him. He makes a face. It's almost like he's like, "This is whatever is on stage now is an alien presence, but it's somehow me. Like I'm attached to it. You know what I mean? It's a justification for everything. He's like, it's it's as we've been talking about all episodes, a catharsis in in the sense of. You know, everything else in his world has been beating down on him. And that's why he kind of says, like, au revoir like with, yeah. at the end. Because it's fine, because he knows he was right in the end. He knows he, that he was... He knows he was tapped into what should be. He turns He that, couldn't get there. Right. He but, turns that very elegant folk song into, like, a blues number. And he, like... He chokes those wells out of, like, you know, the fairly well. Like, he chokes that shit out of himself. You know what I mean? And he just lays it on these fucking people like a fucking blanket. Um, and he's like, I'm, you know, goodbye. Like, fuck you. Like, all the pain and all, like, the meanness. And, like, he's like, just fucking take it. I'm just going to give it to you. Like, I'm gonna, like, it's not folk anymore. It's blues. Here's a blues song. I'm just going to lay myself out there. And then, and then Dylan comes on. And then he's, like you said, he says the au revoir. And like in the Adam Naiman article, he's like analyzes like the meaning of the taxi cab. Like, oh, he gets in, the guy gets in a taxi cab, which Lewin could never afford. And he like goes back to Arkansas. I was like, yeah, maybe, maybe that's true. But maybe like, unless you owned a car, like in New York City, like you maybe you get into a taxi. a taxi cab. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. what are we, uh, I'm fine, I guess. Like, but I feel like you're reading into it. Like one of the things I had reading this essay was like, I one time took this class on Shakespeare after I had spent, like, a long time really being obsessed with Hamlet. And I got, like, a three out of ten on, a, like, a quiz on it because I was reading too much into everything that was happening in Shakespeare. That I couldn't answer, like, a simple question about, like, what was in the text. You know what I mean? Because I was just I – I couldn't see the text anymore. I couldn't see it. I could only see, like, the 15 layers of subtext that I had just, like – shoved into the middle of this play. And I feel like people sometimes do this with Coen Brothers movies, and I feel like people do this a lot with this movie. They shove all the Dave Van Ronk shit, and they shove all the all these Easter eggs, and they shove all this Odyssey stuff and this Coen Brothers mythology and everything, and you're left with just like a big bloated movie full of clues to like how this movie is not really about very much. When in reality, this movie is about all the things that a movie should be about. It's about beautiful aesthetics it's about performances that are um life affirming and life changing and that are going to linger on in your mind for longer than just the movies playing and i just think that people need to relax you know what i mean it's 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 just a beautiful movie 
is it's what it is. It's just one of the really beautiful movies that has been made about anything. Um, you know, cat metaphors or cat symbolism aside or ignored, if you want. I think that's all I'm saying. Save that for your departed and the rat metaphor <laughs> analogy. I smell a rat. Leave it the camera's like, what's that? Jack, I didn't understand you. <laughs> you need to, I need, I need some line reading again? <laughs> there we are. Here we are. 49. 49. Next week, guys, as you just heard, we will not be doing our 48s. We're taking a week break to in anticipation for the opus, apparently, that is the It Chapter 2. All Very 169 minutes of it. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, we will also be presenting and discussing uh, Stephen King that episode with a, a very special guest. Yep. You heard him before. JP will be rejoining us as we run down our top five Stephen King novels and top, our pieces of literature yeah. and top five uh, Stephen King films before diving headlong into the review of It Chapter 2. And then we'll get right back on the list. Are you worried at all about It Chapter 2? No, it's going to be fine. I think I mean, so, too. At worst, it will be entertaining. Um, yeah, I, I think it's weird. I think the cast is very strange. I it's think like it's like a mix of like perfect and a mix of like my interesting. Well, or just like you know, James like McAvoy, you get some money. Jessica Chastain, you get some money. Bill Hader, you get some money. The Old Spice guy, you get some money. Uh, then we have to fill out the rest of the cast with well, these J- other people. James Ransom, that guy, you, you're in this movie. Oh, we don't have to pay Bill Sarsgaard anymore. He just eats children now, for real. He's been <laughs> deeply affected. We just have to pay for his legal team. <laughs> We've been able to protect him through the length of filming this movie, but after this, I don't know what he can do anymore. Uh, Rules get Jess Wexler. She doesn't need money. She hasn't done anything <laughs> since teeth. So, that's fine. Um, but yeah, so that'll be next week. That'll be good. That'll be next week. If you want to tell us not to do that, you, you can email us at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you want to tell us any of your Stephen King list, or Richard Bachman list, as it were. Ooh, yeah. We're not going to separate those two, by the way. No, Richard no, no, no. Bachman and, and Stephen King are the same person. There will be no Joe. <laughs> Do you think there's anybody that didn't know that? No, but people, people are just like, what? No, some people are like, you can't put Long Walk in here, if Long Walk's one of our things. Probably isn't. Um, we won't put any Joe Hill books in there, so don't worry. There will be no Nosferatu, spelled with... A no horns. And eight. Yeah. No, yeah, no horns. I do, I do like the horns movie. I actually, um, the horns book is okay. I heard his books are. I actually haven't read. They're very stuff. quick. Yeah, they're just. Uh, they're just. Yeah, it doesn't matter. They're fine. But if you have your own list to give us, uh, you can you can tweet us at twitter.com/slash/filmpivotal, or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and you can see a list of the uh, movies on our lists or a list of the beers that we've um, drank a thing. Um, drank a thing. Or you can see how you can subscribe to us via various podcast subscription services or you can if you don't know how twitter how to get to twitter there's a, a link, link to our twitter that's exciting there um but yeah no link to facebook though because we don't do facebook we don't do facebook we don't do instagram we did 
Remember we did Instagram? We did, but like, it's like, what pictures would we put up here? Besides like the beers. Beer, yeah. But like, we just do that in Remember the Remember I tried place. to do like the shot up West Craven, was, or West, uh, West Craven. I completely missed all of West Anderson. West Cram, uh, Cranderson? Yeah. I tried to do the West Anderson shot to be like, this is why, and I was like, this is stupid. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, Instagram is very stupid. Yeah. Sorry, Sorry. people that like Instagram. Instagram um, people. But yeah, until then, uh, go see it. Drink a beer, a a a other Jesse beer a company. Hotty, hot 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 It was good. I mean, we drank all the we drank all six of these, and I'm feeling all right. Um, struggling with the last one, so which is good. It's, it's good. Well, that's the New England. It's good. It's good that hits a point where you're just like, nah, yeah, I can't I can't finish it. That's the New England in it. Two's a good limit. Um, we will, yeah, and we will we'll talk to you next, next week. week.